Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, LARB's editor-at-large, and I'm joined in the studio today by managing editor Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. So this week, we're speaking with the directors of the documentary American Factory, Steve Bognar and Julia Reichert. Yes. You're speaking with them, I'm not speaking with them. Yeah, you were not invited. <laughs> Just kidding. You were invited, but you could not be there. Yes. Yes. I spoke with them last week. And American Factory is a new documentary. It's available for streaming on Netflix. And it is about a factory in Dayton, Ohio, that is used to be a GM plant, but that is bought over by a Chinese corporation. Mm. And it's put back into business. The business is called Fuyao. It's a glass production company, and the biggest in the world. And Chinese managers come in and start running this this plant, but American workers are working there. And is that common? No, I think it's a really singular occurrence. Okay, um, and partly why I think both Stephen and Julia did this film, but they had also documented the closing of the GM plant back in 2008. So this movie starts in 2008 with the closing of the GM plant, the sort of decimation of the community, and then picks back up in 2015 when this plant is bought by the Chinese and put back into production. And some of the central things that this movie's about is obviously the cultural clash between the American workers and the Chinese workers and also the Chinese managers who have very different expectations from workers and that the company is, Fuyao, is anti-union. Mm. So this is not a union factory. And part of what happens is the process of unionization at this factory, the ways in which the Chinese and the Americans interact with each other. And I'm not sure we talked about this enough during our interview, but parts of that are really fun to watch because uh -huh. the Chinese are sort of studying the Americans and are kind of baffled by the the variety of like weird habits that they have and the things that they demand. And then the Americans go to China and visit the factory there. It's a really fun and interesting dynamic to, to look at. I mean, it, it goes south. But one of the other interesting things that I thought was that the mix of regimes, and this is an ostensibly communist country, taking over a plant in a capitalist country, but the communist country is anti-union, though they themselves have a union, which is part of the communist regime in China, uh, uh, but they are anti-union in the United States. And then the American workers sort of adopt socialist communist principles in trying to unionize that the Chinese then oppose. Um, so it's this really bizarre... Uh, the Chinese are certainly better capitalists than we are in many different ways, but they're also communist. Anyway, so th it's a really weird Lots of paradoxes. It sounds a, like. Yeah, mm, yeah. That's always, but it's a it's a very interesting documentary. That sounds really good. I'm gonna watch that. Yeah, I think uh, everyone should. And it was, I think, produced by the Obamas, so it's got the stamp of approval from mm. Michelle and Barack. Nice. Yeah, what's what we are always looking for. <laughs> Great. Well, let's listen to your interview. Let's do it. We have Stephen Bognar and Julia Reichert in the studio with us today. Stephen and Julia are Oscar-nominated documentary filmmakers. 
Their previous films include the Emmy Award-winning documentary A Line in the House and The Last Truck, Closing of a GM Plant, which premiered in 2009 and was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Short in 2010. Julia Reichert herself has been making films for over 50 years. She is also Oscar-nominated for her own documentary feature films, Union Maids and Seeing Red, Stories of American Communists, which, as she told me earlier, was partly filmed at KPFK Studios, where we are right now. Their latest film is American Factory. It opens in L.A. at the Landmark on Pico and New York and additional cities and launches on Netflix on Wednesday, August 21st. Okay, Stephen and Julia, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome, and hey, tell everybody, see it in a real movie theater. They should. can. They should, because, so it's a documentary. We should start mm-hmm. with that. And it chronicles the fall, and then the rise, <laughs> and then perhaps... The new direction. The new direction. Yeah, a whole new direction. The rough ride, the bumpy ride. The bumpy ride of a plant in Ohio, in Dayton, Ohio. And they should see it on a big screen because, as I can testify, though I watched it on a small screen, there are many very beautiful shots of the factory running and of the materials that this place takes to actually produce the stuff that they produce. The automotive glass. Right. In fact, if you check your automobiles, you might see the label of this company, which is called Fuyao, Little Tab. They make a huge amount of the automotive glass we have in our cars in America now. So I wanted to start with one of the first shots of this film in American Factory is actually some of the last shots in your other film, The Last Truck. Could you set the scene for us a little bit? What happened in 2008 and where does this movie start? In June of 2008 in Dayton, Ohio, where we live actually, GM announced they were going to close their huge factory. Thousands of people were going to lose their jobs. And we started following that. It was a six-month countdown to the last day. And on that last day, there was a gathering of the community to sort of say goodbye to this iconic factory. This factory that had helped build like a middle class in our kind of blue-collar town. We had a multiracial middle class where people who worked in factories made enough money, it was a unionized plant, that they could afford a home and send their kids to college, even though maybe, you know, they never went to college. And so that day, December 23rd, 2008, is sort of seared in our emotional memory in our town. The closure of the plant and the whole economic collapse was devastating for our town and certainly for the blue-collar middle-class people there who felt like, what's going to happen now? What's going to happen to my home? What's going to happen to my kids? What's going to happen to our life, our lifestyle that we've become you know, used to? A good middle-class lifestyle. And yeah. so we understood when we, when you fast forward about seven or eight years, and the same GM plant, which had been empty, was bought. So it was like the news. Hey, there's going to be manufacturing again in that plant. The owner, though, to our surprise, was a Chinese entrepreneur billionaire named Chairman Zhao, who came over to make automotive glass here and make that plant come alive again. So we knew it was happening in our hometown. We also how do I say it? We're aware, like we all are, that there's a great rivalry between China and the U.S. It's one of the big stories of the 21st century, yeah. let's say. So here it was, it was going to happen in our own backyard because they were going to bring over hundreds of Chinese workers. They were going to hire American blue-collar workers and management people and try to make this plant a success. So we decided this sounds like a really, really interesting story. 
to take one step back, I was curious about, so you say that this is your hometown, Dayton, Ohio. Yeah. Stephen, how did you grow up in? Well, I moved there when I was 11. And actually, Julia came when she went to college. But we've each been there over 40 years. So at this point, you know, I spent all my teenage years there. It's our town. Yeah. And actually, our town is, you know, as you know from the news, our town is hard hit right now. Yes. Because we're still recovering from this terrible mass shooting and... Also, we had a series of tornadoes, and we had a KKK rally in our downtown. It's been a really hard summer back home. And the amazing thing is that the sense of community that has sort of just rushed in after that attack in our Oregon District bar area, that sense of community is really palpable right now. It really is. And I think that's good you ask us that. Most people don't ask us that, but actually... For any person who does any kind of creative work, whether it's writing or film or whatever, who you are as a person, your background has a lot to do with what you then decide to do. Right. So for me, I come more out of the 60s generation. I come from a working class background. My dad was a union man. I come from a small town. My dad was a union man and a Republican, Mm. whole family Republican. And that understanding of what class means In America, which is something that's kind of fuzzy, people don't want to say there's class differences, but there are, it's kind of motivated me to want to tell stories about people from working class backgrounds, especially women, over all those 50 years that you mentioned. So I've made a number of films, both history films, like the one that was partly shot here in another studio, not this one, history films as well as films about, like The Last Truck, about the condition of American workers now. Yeah, so that's partly personally motivated for you. Oh, totally. Very much so. I don't think there are very many filmmakers and so forth who are making films that really understand working class life. And working class life has been beaten and battered a lot in recent decades. And particularly, I think, in the way it's represented in the media and in films and the media. Yeah. Yeah. And let's, you know, if you think about it, you know, we're not to get political because our film does not really get political, but I can't help thinking about it. We're facing the elections. You know, we wonder why did Trump win the election? Why do we have this president? I think the battle for the heart of America is taking place in the Midwest Mm -hmm. right now. And it's taking place in the hearts and minds of people in the last truck and people in American factory. There are going to be in the end, like the deciders, about what happens. And we cannot, if we ignore them, it's at our peril, whether we're Democratic candidates or whether we're just citizens who want to support a candidate. We have to hear what those folks are going to actually do for working class Americans. Yeah. I actually want to come back to that. So let's get into the movie. Sure. So in 2015, as you both mentioned, Fuyao, it's a Chinese company, comes in to Dayton, buys this plant. Fuyao is the largest glass manufacturer in the world? Is that right? Yeah. Supposedly, that's the largest plant in the world to manufacture automotive glass. Yeah. So they provide glass for? All the big three, for Honda, Toyota, BMW, Volkswagen. That's why they decided to move to the U.S. They had been shipping glass from China, but glass is really heavy. The shipping costs, the fuel costs are expensive. Labor costs in China have been going up. Workers Mm -hmm. have been demanding more money. Mm -hmm. Labor costs in the U.S. have been going down. And so the chairman and his team finally said, you know what, it's worth coming to the U.S. And apparently he was being asked by some of the big car makers, set up shop 
in the Midwest because we need your products. We don't have enough supply chain. Okay, so I was wondering how that happened exactly. And Dayton, and I think this comes out a little bit in the film, Dayton also gives them a pretty large tax break. And that and the state of Ohio as well. The, Ohio and the county and the city, we were all, you know, everyone's trying to woo Fuyao to come to Dayton. Yeah. We're hungry for jobs. We're hungry for jobs that offer benefits and at least some kind of steady salary. Well, after the GM plant closed, those workers who had been making 29 or $32 an hour, the available work in 2008, 2009, 2010, 2010 on, yeah. mm-hmm. it was warehouse distribution centers for like Payless shoes or Kohl's. They paid like 8 or $9 an hour, no benefits. They did not let workers work full time because if you work full time, you got to offer benefits. Right. So it was like 30, 35 hours a week but just really low wages. I mean, we followed that actually through radio. We did a whole series of radio stories called Reinvention Stories through our local radio station, WYSO, in Yellow Springs. We followed this the whole 10 years. We found people living in their cars. Pretty much everyone lost their home. Kids had to drop out of college and work to support their family. It was a very frightening and rough time and helped us understand the stakes for the workers in going into that plant. They really needed to have those jobs. They wanted that plant to stay. They wanted to make it a success. I mean, the management had their own stakes. The owner had their own stakes. This is a film where you've seen it. I mean, you understand everybody's point of view. You do, yeah. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was you talk to the workers, you talk to management, and you also talk to Chairman Chow. And him as a person I found really fascinating. What was it? Like, so he's a billionaire, right? He mm-hmm. comes into Dayton. He starts this plant. What was it like spending time with this person? Or what was he like? Too? You know, it's funny. I actually liked the guy. He was a little intimidating at first, but mm-hmm. when we got to know him a little more, I discovered that he and I are born within a month of each other. Oh. And so, you know, we had some of the same historic references to what was going on around the globe. I mean, I remember the Cultural Revolution and how we all, as young leftists, looked upon it. He Mm -hmm. went through the Cultural Revolution. He went through all those points in history. So I I actually kind of liked him. He's complicated. I mean, he's a hard-driving capitalist. Chinese are very good capitalists now. At the same time, he's a practicing Buddhist, we found out. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of philosophical. He's complicated. We did not expect him to be so reflective, you know, to question his own process of becoming this super successful guy. He acknowledges, like, have I hurt the environment? Am I sinning against things? And he also talks about what he lost along the way. In a way, what China has lost, what's happened in China these last 30 years is amazing. On one level, hundreds of millions of people have been lifted out of poverty But it's also come at serious environmental cost and sort of a disruption of tranquility in a lot of ways. So it's he sees the complexities of it, and we appreciate him being so open with us. Why did he let you come in? Because there's no reason to, right? I mean, if you're starting a new factory. Okay, tell us about it. I disagree with that. I think this was going to be historic. This Mm -hmm. was going to be hard. This was going to be a challenge. And he saw all that coming. It was not our idea to make the film. The folks who wooed, who helped woo Fuyao to come to Dayton, they were talking to the Fuyao team early on, and someone said, we should document this. Mm. This is going to be big. This is going to be historic. And our name came up because the locals know that we had made the last truck. And so when the company started talking to us, they were thinking like they would pay us to make the film. And we said, no, we, we don't do that. But if you give us access 
and yet we own the film, it's independent, we have editorial control, we don't take any money from the company, then we'll do it. And the chairman agreed to that, and that's how we got started. So let's talk a little bit about the challenges that immediately arise. And you can see, you know, coming from a mile away, obviously, (laughs) with a Chinese plant in the middle of the Midwest. Initially, I mean, I think the first thing that you see is the culture clash, right? We never quite figured the right word. Culture clash, culture negotiation, Mm -hmm. culture collision. You know, what was going to happen? We That was our first really great interest, or how are these two cultures going to come together? Were they going to come together? Were they somehow going to meld, or were they going to negotiate, or are they going to really clash? And I guess there was more of the last two. <laughs> well, I think uh, it sort of moves throughout the film yeah. and changes, and you see them kind of—I think negotiation does seem like a good word for yeah. it, because— yeah. Everybody's constantly figuring out how to manage the differences between them yeah. in each other, right? It was yes. so fun at first because, yeah. you know, the, the Americans are inviting the Chinese folks over to do barbecues or shoot guns or ride Harleys. Yeah. And the Chinese folks were inviting the Americans over for like a home-cooked Chinese meal. And there was a lot of goodwill, a lot of great energy, curiosity. And it lasted a good long while until profit was not being made fast enough. What were the first sort of instances that you saw arise where you were like, okay, I think there's going to be some difficulties ahead? I don't know. We'd probably each remember different things. I remember very clearly that when people were first hired, they were hired at $12 an hour, which everybody knew was too low for that kind of work. Okay. But everyone also would say, and they were told, is my understanding in their initial meeting that they had to get hired, you'll get a raise within a year. You get a dollar raise within a year. So after a year, we went around and asked people, hey, did you get your dollar raise? And to a person, nobody said yes. You know, it might have taken a month. It might have taken two months. And people started getting annoyed about that. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, I was willing. It's a startup. I'm willing to sacrifice. I want this to work. But where's my raise? And policy started getting kind of crazy. Like, how many points would you get if you called in sick? Well, at first it was one, and then it was more. And then it was, well, you actually can't call in sick. You just you lose your point, even if you're in the emergency yeah. room or at your doctor. So it got to be that, I mean, I could give you many examples yeah. of policies, but they kept changing, and they kept getting worse, and people would get upset. Another thing was the heat. As it got to be summer... The heat was really, really oppressive, and there weren't even water coolers at first, but they were then installed. But everything was kind of done a little after the fact, after there was a problem, Mm -hmm. which has something to do with this is a brand new factory in America for this company that's used to having factories in China, where the rules are different, where the expectations are different, not better or worse, just different. So it started getting tense. It started getting very hot people started getting fired for what seemed like no reason, they would say, well, my supervisor didn't like me and they just fired me. I don't know why. Stuff like that. And there was no one to talk with because there were so many people in the supervisory roles who only spoke Mandarin Chinese. Your cell phone only goes so far in terms of translating. They had some translators, but we think they sure could have used more. Yeah, we were astounded at how much people literally communicated by typing something into their cell phone and pushing translate. And then you would sometimes get Really strange translation. That yeah, very I'm sure. To do, and you're trying to learn how to use a piece of equipment with a Chinese speaker who's like pointing at things, 
and a translation that maybe doesn't make sense. It was fun. It was funny at times. Everybody could have a good laugh about it, but then it got really kind of difficult and frustrating, especially when the profit motive really kicked in. They had to make money. They had to produce glass. They took many, many, many orders that had to get filled. The ambition was remarkable. From Mm -hmm. our perspective, it's like you would build and finish this factory before you started production. And the way they did it, and what we've heard is this is sort of a Chinese style, is you charge forward, you say, we're going to start producing glass as quickly as possible, even if it's only like one assembly line surrounded by construction on either side. Mm -hmm. There were cement mixers pouring concrete right next to or right nearby assembly lines that were making the first windshield. It was like this strange kind of rush into production. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at KPFK in sunny Studio City. We've been speaking with Stephen Bognar and Julia Reichert, directors of the film American Factory. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Anthony McCann here in the studio with us today. Anthony is the author of a number of poetry collections, but his latest book is called Shadowlands. And it is about the occupation uh, up in Oregon of the Mallor National Wildlife Refuge. And Anthony's here to give us a book recommendation. Anthony, what book are you going to recommend? I like this question a lot, um, and it took me a while to... to to think of one. I wanted to think, I had to read so much in writing this book, um, Mm -hmm. and and then it was very hard, and so many of the books I read were so wonderful. Um, It's a tough question for many people, It's a tough tough question all the time, but even within that small parameter, um, it was still hard. And I'm going to settle on um, the biography of Joseph Smith by Fawn Brody, called No One Knows My History. Why? Why this book? It's a stunning book. It's it's become one of my favorite books. It's just just in terms of like... um, capturing the the intensity and the dynamism of that time and of that particular person and of how he went from being just a a poor young rube with a you know with a country bumpkin with a overactive imagination to being like the creator of one of the largest religions in the world. Yeah, um, we should say explicitly the the Mormon faith. The Mormon faith, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith is the originator, the prophet of the Latter Day Saints, and how that story and his story and the dispensation of Mormonism is kind of a parallel dispensation to the story of nineteenth century America and and how it how its energies reverberate in our time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's an it's an immensely embodied biography beautifully written and full of sensuous detail of landscape and feeling and um, and all the oddities and intensities of doctrine and politics and psyche. Um, it's a pretty stunning book all the way through. It sounds fascinating. Will you tell us the name of the book again and the author? It's called No One Knows My History, which is something Joseph Smith actually said towards oh. the end of his life. Um, Shortly before he was assessed. This biographer knows his history. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's I think that's what she's claiming. Okay. Um, or, <laughs> yeah. or maybe not. And Fawn Brody is the author. And yeah, it's a biography, biography of Joseph Smith. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Anthony. Thank you. We've been speaking with Anthony McCann, author of Shadowlands. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. 
We now return to our conversation with Stephen Bognar and Julia Reichart, directors of the film American Factory. I'm glad you mentioned that because I was a little confused in the beginning because I saw people working Mm -hmm. on factory lines, but then you could also see construction right. around it. And so I was like, well, how what's is happening? How's this, yeah, there'd be, yeah. how's there'd this be going? Cherry picker, there'd be cherry pickers above the lines, you know, fixing lighting and fixing wiring and so yeah. forth. It was just that, again, the, in, in China, a factory like that could be started, built, and in profit in about a year. Mm-hmm. That is definitely not going to happen here. I mean, we have a lot more regulations. You have a lot more contractors to deal with. I mean, I've now, because we ha- we, we ended up bringing in a number of wonderful Chinese co-producers, field producers and co-producers, and they had us read a lot of books about China, which was really, really helpful. But people will tend to, and again, it's just different. If you want to make a plan, say for this studio that we're in right now, you take a piece of paper and you draw some lines and you, a few arrows, mm-hmm. and there's the plan, go take it to the architect, take it to the builders and go do it. Well, we don't do that. We have architects and we, we have to have- We have blueprints. Right. Right. Yeah, it's we have n- people who probably have to come and approve and then, the plan. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, right, absolutely. give you a license. And people from the stuff. state yeah. or the city or whatever. Right. There's just not that kind of, it's just not done that way Yeah, from what we understand over there. And it's not bad or good. It's just very yeah, different. That's yeah. important for us is we really tried to make the film not through an American lens, mm-hmm. right? Even though we are Midwestern Americans, even though it's easy to look at China as sort of this looming challenge or threat or whatever word you want to use we wanted the film to not watch that through an anxiety lens Mm -hmm. you know midwestern unease lens it's a global phenomenon and if you're like wong in our movie the young furnace engineer it's a super exciting time for him you know yes he's come over to the u.s he's not going to see his kids for like two years but he's on the high seas he's like doing something really big for his company for, for which he has great loyalty, and it's exciting. He's, he's in this new territory, so for him, it's like this upward trajectory. He's it's like it's like a really exciting time. But then you've got Jill or Shanae or Bobby, and they're going into a factory where they're making twelve bucks an hour when they used to make twenty nine bucks an hour. Twelve bucks an hour translates to roughly twenty six thousand a year. If you're forty in your forties or fifties and you've got mm-hmm. kids. That's you can't sustain a family on that. So it, the disparity of what's normal mm-hmm. was so big between them, and I think that started to put a wedge between uh, the Chinese side and the American side. Yeah, and I yeah. will. Well, I should add that the salaries did go up to fourteen an hour, uh, and then it was fourteen eighty six once you completed your three months. And some people who've been working there a few years are now making 18 or 19 an hour, even maybe 1950 is the top you can make, I believe. That's what I've been told. So it's not like everybody is still making $12 an hour. They're not. They start at 14. Well, that's one of the central conflicts that arises in the film is this question of unionization, right, and making more money an hour. And the difficulty and I think the deep irony of solidarity that arises so it's complicated, and the film does a good job of sort of teasing apart the many different ways in which unionization is complicated. And there's people who are paid to come in, people who have different agendas, and, and workers who are scared and workers who are determined. And can you talk a little bit about that unionization process that we see? Well, first of all, Medea, yeah. I want to point out that 
I don't think it was just about higher wages. Mm -hmm. I don't think the mm -hmm. desire to have a union was spurred on by higher wages, even though we have, we've been talking a lot about yeah. wages. There also were some serious safety concerns. There was a sense that the workers had no voice. I mean, all these crazy policy changes, what could they do? They can't go on strike. They could all be fired right. and replaced. There was a small safety committee, but it was controlled by the HR department. So, you know, it wasn't worker controlled, really. So workers wanted more of a voice, mm -hmm. probably more than just pay. And yes, they did bring in union avoidance company, union avoidance consultants, which any American factory would do. This is not a Chinese thing. They were taught how to avoid the union by the American consultants. They were called Labor Relations Institute. I mean, you can look them up. They're one of many, many such firms. And they're, they have a strong playbook. They really know what they're doing. They've been doing it for decades. They've got it down. What we And we didn't know anything about this when we went in. We didn't know there was such a thing. I mean, we vaguely heard about it, but I think most this all, most people, it's a secret to most people in the country that these labor relations, these anti-union firms operate and have a big influence. So they... I did not know. I, yeah, I, this yeah, is the well, first time I'd heard of it. I heard about yeah. it, yeah. Well, you know, you probably read in the newspaper that there was a big union vote in Tennessee mm -hmm. at a Volkswagen plant. And the workers chose not to go for a union. And the same thing then happened in Alabama at a Nissan plant. What we don't hear about in these stories is the sort of super intense messaging campaign, a lot of closed mandatory meetings, closed door captive audience meetings, repeat, repeating again and again why a union would be bad. We don't hear about that when we read about these votes. And that that's by design. The, the, it, it's a fierce campaign, but it's also meant to be sort of an invisible campaign. There's messaging all over. And I think it's – and also, you know, workers got fired. Mm -hmm. People who were union activists, like one of the people in the film, who became a union activist, she didn't start out that way, basically did get fired because of her union activity. They, it's, it's illegal to do that, so you have to find another reason. I mean, the company right. would say she was not fired for her union activity. Yeah. But – you know. Well, the National Labor Relations Board, she later went to them and she got compensation well, there for... Were, no, the company settled. The company it, it, settled. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a ruling. Right. The they company settled, against. which is what they usually do. And it's not a lot of money. So, they, you know, it's not a big deal to them. Right. When you see that, like you can imagine you're working in an, in an office and somebody's an outspoken union supporter and they get fired because they're late for work one day. And then there's somebody else who like says, hey, you want to... Let's talk about this over lunch. Mm -hmm. And they get fired. For some other infraction, they don't call, they don't call in when they're sick one day. You start getting worried about being a union supporter and voting yeah. for the union. This goes on in American American plants, American workplaces of all kinds, and we sort of captured some of that in in the film. I was actually a part of the UAW union. Oh, yeah, maybe about as five years student? as a grad student. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Where at UCLA? Wow. Okay. So um so I I still get updates and I was like, "Oh, hey, my my friends that are um being kind of fucked over." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um well that, You know, I do I yes, do want to say ahead. once once the union campaign really started going, people started looking at us from both sides, wondering are, whose side are we on? You know, uh -huh. cuz we we would be in there 
people would see us talking to management because we did always talk to the leadership and the management and they wondered are we like spies for management and then but then uh the management wondered like are we are we feeding information to the uaw folks and we had to be really careful to to say well we're be, we're neutral we are um trying to show and tell and and portray both sides mm-hmm. and do it fairly uh, but but we had to be also be really careful not to accidentally reveal something that we might have overheard because we were hearing stuff right, left yeah. and right. And that sort of speaks to the really tense atmosphere that started to develop in the plant around this whole battle mm-hmm. that people just were really afraid to take sides, afraid to speak out. And in the end, the, the way the union avoidance company wins is people just are like, I just want to get this over with. I don't even want to vote. I can't figure it out. It's too complicated. And then they've won. It's right. not like they've convinced people a union would be bad necessarily, but just that, they, you know, these folks are not necessarily folks who went to college, who know how to read like the National Labor Relations Act, uh, you know, et cetera. They don't really yeah. necessarily, you don't grow up knowing your rights as a worker. Well, we, we for example, people would confuse the NLRB with LRI. Mm-hmm. The names are somewhat similar. But one's a government agency that's designed to protect working and people, and the other is a consulting firm to help corporations avoid unions. Right. So, anyway. <laughs> one of the, I mean, one of the striking and really deep ironies of this movie is that the company that is Fuyao is technically from a communist government, <laughs> right? And and there's a scene A worker's where, paradise. A worker's paradise, as we all know. And you go to China, then, mm-hmm. and a few of the American, um, I think, management go, go to China. And that really, I think, drives it home because there's a union leader in China who is part of the company and talks about the, the rights of the workers and it's, it's a, yeah, sorry, go ahead. So it turns out, yeah, that guy, um, gosh, I'm forgetting his name. Mr. He. Uh, Mr. Mm-hmm. He, right. Okay. So, yeah, he was the head of the union and the head of the Communist Party for that factory. And he was also the chairman's brother-in-law. So he was a member of the com- – the chairman is not, as far as we know, a member of the Communist Party. Oh, interesting. No, he's not. And it's a private company. It's not a government company because there are both kinds. And they're mm-hmm. also kind of hybrids. But this is a private company. The way they see it, all the workers in China are in this union. The union is part of the government. The union doesn't the union does speak the the national union of everybody does try to fight for better working conditions and so forth, but it's basically again controlled by the government, which is the Communist Party. And for right. what yes, it does fight for workers' rights, it does provide I mean it might be interesting it was interesting for us to find out that on every big factory there would be a Communist Party headquarters on the factory grounds, on the factory grounds. Mm-hmm. That would be part of it. And the factory, the Communist Party headquarters would often be the same as the union headquarters. And it would provide classes and softball team or, well, I guess they don't play softball, but soccer team. They yeah. had rooms for people to learn calligraphy, beautiful rooms, uh, libraries, meeting rooms. You know, so it was kind of a little bit, you might say, like a like a community center or a union hall might be here. Yeah. At the same time, we understand that there are lots of, there's lots of labor unrest in China now, that there, mm-hmm. there are strikes, there are work, work stoppages, and workers are trying to demand a better life than what we saw in the, when we went to China, which is people talked about, they work 
you know, six, seven days a week, 12 hours a day. They maybe get two days off a month, not even always. That's how much they work. And because of the recent modernization in China, many people live, you know, a thousand miles away, and that's where their children are. That's where they're from, a rural village. And right. they've come to the cities for money, and they don't even see their kids maybe but once a year. So work life is really, really hard in China also, and workers are starting to express their unrest there. So one of the last notes in the film is a scene where you see an automated arm moving glass from one area to another, and you had seen a person doing that previously. And in fact, there are multiple scenes, I think, of people doing that. And it's kind of a it's a, tw- it's a twist in some ways. I mean, not to give anything. It's a documentary. So I think we're safe. Spoiler alert. But at least for me, when I was watching and I saw that scene, I said, oh, my God, wait a second. We've been looking the wrong way hmm. this whole time. This is where this is what we should be looking at. When you arrived at the decision to in- include that or to turn the movie into the direction also of automation and this bigger question of what happens to, to, to workers in the working class with this rising threat, how did you think about that? How did you think about including it? And what are, yeah. yeah I mean, it's an important it? scene because it, it, it really sort of is concisely conveys that automation and AI are, are coming. They are tsunamis heading our way, we wanted it there. We wanted the scene near the end because we want to leave viewers, we hope to leave viewers grappling with the implications of that. Mm. You know, automation, the machinery technology has been around since the cotton gin started, you know, helping people or, or so supplanting workers doing things by hand like 100, almost 200 years ago. The reality is it's coming and we can't avoid it, but we also can harness it if we work collectively. Mm-hmm. You know, if we choose to have real intensive dialogues between government, businesses, and working people about how should this go, it's going to go one way or the other. If, if AI and automation are just tools to increase profit, then it's going to go a certain direction that continues the, the wage gaps and the, mm-hmm. the huge disparities that we now see everywhere. But automation could also help stop repetitive motion injuries and make work, hard work more benign without displacing jobs if it's designed that way. I guess with, yeah, we always think of it as who's going to be at the table when we discuss and figure out the future of work and workers? Should it just be corporations and corporate leaders? Should it just be government? Or should it also be the voice of workers? Mm -hmm. And one of the main voices of workers really is unions. It's not the only one, but it's one of the main ones. So who's going to be at the table? And, you yeah. know, the film grapples with that at the end, but it's, we hope it's not the only issue that you're left with because w- what we've walked away from these four years of super intense work on this film is that the lives of working people are in a pressure cooker right now more than ever. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got higher demands for productivity. Wages are being pushed down wherever that can happen. Automation is looming, environmental issues, safety issues. And that's true whether you're in China or in the U.S. And we want to, We hope the film like sparks some real conversations about what is this sustainable? How do working people, can they have a decent life? Yeah. Well, you know, we have this big word 
that we talk about globalization. Mm-hmm. But what, in the end, what we hope our film does is show you what globalization looks like on just a human, intimate level uh, in people's lives in one factory in Dayton, Ohio, and one factory in China. And if we just can do, if we can offer that, we can't offer solutions, but if we can offer that, our experience, seeing what that looks like in real life, then I hope we've made a, a, a good film. I think you have. Um, I, when I was watching, I really was struck by, oh my God, I've never seen this. I've never seen a factory That's right. film before. I've, I've not, you know. It's hard to imagine an American corporation giving us that trust. You right. Know? And it was, it was trust from the chairman. It was also trust from every single person we filmed because every individual had to give us permission to film them or record them. And we're deeply grateful that every, everyone took this chance on us mm-hmm. because, you know, there would be no film if people don't say, okay, I'm going to share my truth, my story with you. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't fuck it up. Yeah. <laughs> well, next, um, people should just go and see it. So thank you so much, Stephen and Julia, for coming and talking to us today. Oh, you're welcome, Adia. This has been interesting and fun. Oh, good. Yeah, um, their latest film is called American Factory, and it will be available on Netflix and in New York and L.A., elite and, coastal towns. And, and Toronto. Oh, and, and Toronto. Washington, D.C., and San Francisco and London and Dayton, Dayton Ohio. Ohio. Oh, great. Um, on August 21st. Right. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 